When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This is Conspiranormal. All right, everybody, welcome back to Conspiranormal. And uh, we really have someone that needs no introduction because this is probably like the 1,500th time that this individual has been on this show. One of our favorite guests ever and uh, has been a stalwart of the uh, Strange Realities crew and we're going to actually talk about uh, him doing the next Strange Realities presentation coming up on the 22nd as well, July 22nd. And that's the one, the only, Joshua Cutchin. Welcome to Conspirate Normal, Josh. It's, it's great to be here. I keep on waiting for my commemorative mug. Yeah, I think uh, I think we've got a few commemorative mugs to put out. I mean, you might you might tie Walter, but I think you're right below Walter Bosley and Doctor Future for the for the most number of shows. Yeah, I think I I, I think so at this point. And uh, but what we're going to talk about tonight is you have done what only Guns and Roses has done before. <laughs> This is your use your illusion moment uh, where you have put out two books at the same time, Ecology of Souls, Volume 1 and Ecology of Souls, Volume 2. And we're going to talk about Ecology of Souls, Volume 1 tonight. Yeah, it was uh, a little bit ambitious. Um, Yeah. If you you look at it a certain way, I've put out four books because, you know, there's the ebook, which is Volumes 1 and 2. And there's also print volume one, print volume two, and there's also a third companion. That's how big this thing got. Um, the companion is like, I think, 340 pages or something. And it's just appendices in notes and bibliography. And, um, you know, not a cash grab because it's freely available on my website. But it became very apparent that um, 
if I were to include the, all that reference material in each book, then it would just become literally unwieldy um, to, to purchase and to have and to read. And, you know, I, I, uh, I, I think that Amazon's production has come a long way in terms of the way that they bind their books, but I still, you know, every time you increase the, the number of pages, it's like, you know, how, how long is this thing going to hold up? So that was really the choice. And luckily, you know, there's a, there's an academic precedent for that, uh, for just including, you know, just a dedicated bibliography. And I'm like, well, I don't want to make people buy another thing. So it's, that's available on my website as well. But yeah, um, started off as one book. I thought it was going to be just like, you know, I don't know, another 80,000 word book or whatever. And it came in at 265,000 words. Um, so yeah, I think that's roughly a third the length of the Bible. Um, and I, I, I'm not saying that like it's a virtuous thing. Like I, mm. I hate that it's this long in a lot of ways. Um, but it became apparent that in order to tackle some of the stuff I was tackling, there had to just be a lot of background information about some of these ancient concepts about what the soul is to begin with. Cause you are taking on the biggest mystery of them all. Yeah. And, and then there's this thing where, you know, you think you're just going to talk about death and you're like, okay, well, I've got to talk about NDEs. And I've got to talk about reincarnation and you kind of have got to talk about birth too, if you're going to talk about those things. And then well, if you're just talking about the soul, you've kind of got to talk about polypsychism and doppelgangers. And so you can see it just sort of like blossoms out or, you know, metastasizes depending on how you want to look at it. Um, and you end up talking about all these things. So there's some stuff that I had no idea I was going to talk about that made it into the book because it's just like, well, you can still find, you know, connections to, to all these things through, through, through death, through that angle. Well, I, I remember I was in um, Atlanta, you and I were hanging out and we were actually looking for some like weird Bigfoot statue or something. And you had told me about uh, you were referencing something and talking about how this all fairies and ufos and this paranormal phenomenon all has to do with death and um i think that that was part of the genesis of you kind of coming up with this whole concept so let's start off with talking about what the origin of the ecology of souls is and where some of this inspiration to really kind of delve into concepts of death and uh these other concepts yeah, I think that the world might have you to thank for this, Adam, because I I was in 2020 and I was just trying to think of a new project that I wanted to do. Um, and I wrote you and I said, you know, this, this or this. And you suggested that I pursue this book on death. So I guess the world has to thank you or blame you because, yeah, we, we did talk about it that long ago. And even before that, I was looking um I mentioned some of these ideas in passing in Thieves of the Night, and then I saw an older presentation that I did for one of these paramania gatherings where uh, it was kind of dedicated to this idea. And the idea at the time was like, you know, the the sort of uh, catchphrase that I had for it was, what if it's all one big ghost story, right? And that's super reductive, and that's not, not really where it led me. Um, but I think that the genesis for this book really stemmed from from two things um the first one was uh, that wonderful Anne streber quote was on the heels of communion and a lot of people had written in letters sharing their own experiences and shared them with Anne and whitley and whitley came into their study at one point and Anne, who was i think probably the one going through the most letters um had scrawled on a sheet of paper this has something to do with what we call death um 
And then once that sticks in the back of your back of your mind, you see it across the phenomena in a lot of different ways. Um, and the, one of the most obvious ways, which nobody really likes to talk about, but I think you actually mentioned on Conspiranormal too, when you're talking, you might've been talking with Walter actually, was uh, the fact that people during uh, abductions and, and periods of heavy UFO contact see dead loved ones. Um, and that's sort of been my go-to uh, counterpoint whenever people like double down on the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis is to say, okay, well, if it's aliens, you know, what is Aunt Gertrude doing there? You know, it doesn't quite, doesn't quite line up with what we would expect. Um, so you have, so you have these two factors that I, I really wanted to dig into. Um, and then there's sort of a, a legacy that I think in, in hindsight haunts the Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia, which it's, it's a foundational work. It's a, one of my guiding lights, right? <clears throat> but Vallée compared a lot of the, the UFO phenomena to the fairy folk phenomena, but the thing that goes unsaid that that haunts Passport to Magonia is the fact that so much of this fairy lore is tied up with with the dead as well. And so, if you apply the you know transitive logic, if the fairies are associated with the dead and and the UFO, especially the alien abduction experience, resembles fairy lore, then by the transitive property, it suggests that there there is indeed a link there. Um, so. That was sort of the genesis of it. Um, the book itself takes a phrase from uh, Terence McKenna's lectures um, where he was remarking upon the nature of the DMT realm after you know smoking DMT, you find yourself bursting through this chrysanthemum and traveling down a tunnel and winding up in this space and uh, you know populated in his words by self-dribbling machine elves. Um, although those don't appear all the time, that was sort of a meme that he might've originated, but he, he said, you know, he said, you come to this realization, my God, what if this is an ecology of souls? Um, so I thought that was a really, I think that, I think that the phrase ecology of souls imparts a lot with very few words that I think I'm, I'm always trying to get across um, to people as they picked up the book. Um, number one, like, yes, a new mythology of death in the paranormal because death is a focal point, but the soul craft is, is really what a lot of the book focuses on. Um, and then the ecological point, the idea that there are niches to be filled within this, this overarching system um, that I think the conclusion that I sort of came to in the broadest of strokes is that a lot of these phenomena are appearing to usher us beyond the transition to prepare us for the transition. Um, but to also, you know, launder new souls for us to be reborn anew um which is a super woo woo out there idea but um i wanted to i wanted to confront some of these ideas um and you know part of my philosophy is push where there's mush if you don't like something <laughs> you've got to find a way to incorporate it if you're going to be intellectually honest right so i didn't like stories of reincarnation and alien abductions i didn't like stories of past lives and alien abductions but those stories aren't going away and you've got to do something with them if you're going to have a holistic approach to the phenomena so that's that's what we wound up with right yeah it's um it's fascinating stuff and and, and the terence mckenna of course you know he's he graces the cover of the book in rather stylized way but um the artwork of which is is absolutely beautiful yeah who did the artwork for that Johnny Decker Miller, um, who actually had an appearance on Strange Familiars. I was, I was, I remember distinctly. I texted Tim, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to need an artist for this, these books. Um, 
you know, I, I love your work, Tim, but I don't want to become so inextricably associated with it that like, I, I keep on using you. So I said, who, who could pull off this sort of Byzantine style that I'm looking for um, to suggest some of the grandeur of the ideas, not necessarily the grandeur of the work, but the grandeur of the ideas and how expansive they are. And he said, Oh, Johnny Decker Miller is your man. And uh, you can check out his website, Johnny Um, It's just wonderful stuff that looks like wood etchings and, you know, there mm-hmm. are, I think he could have produced 10 more covers like this that all would have just been breathtaking, but he really did a great job. And he also provided spot illustrations um, for each of the chapters, which I think are, I like them just as much as the cover, honestly. Um, they're very nice. Yeah, they're really cool looking. This was self-published, um, which, you know, while where, where the footprints of was self-published with me and Timothy, this is my first solo outing as, a, as self-publishing a book. So it definitely took a village. Um, Johnny did the artwork. Uh, Barbara Fisher from Six Degrees of John Keel uh, did the editing. And uh, Mike Cleland did the layout design and, and helped format the ebook, which is just something that I I have no frame of reference for how to do any of, any of that stuff. So I am incredibly indebted to their help on this. Yeah, my my first three books are with Anomalous Books, and uh, I have a great relationship with Patrick Weege. He's one of the nicest people that I've met involved in these fields. He's the the owner of Anomalist. Um, but you know, part of me wanted to see what this process would look like uh, going on my own, so to speak. Even though I just said it wasn't on my own, but like you know, being the one to organize it and stuff. Definitely gives me a, a better appreciation for the publishing process. Um, but, you know, part of it too was um, I'm not sure in this current form, and this isn't a, this isn't a, a dunk on Patrick or really any other publishers, but I'm not sure how many publishers in this form would have been able to look at this and say, yeah, let's, let's publish that because it's just, it's so big. Um, it's intimidating. It's talking about a lot of ideas that I don't think, you know, they're not ideas that you're going to run into on history channel or Gaia. Um, so I, I think that I kind of just said, you know, I don't want to have to, to tussle with anybody about what should and shouldn't, shouldn't be in here. I just want to make this to be a, yeah, a yeah, singular vision kind of thing. Right. So, you know, having said that it's an incredible amount of work to self-publish and do it right. Um, if I did do it right uh, to self-publish and do it right is an incredible amount of time, resources, and energy. And it's really made me rethink if I want to do it again, but, uh, but I'm glad that I did it for this experience at least. So let's get into it. Um, you start off the book with talking about NDEs near death experiences. Um, why do you start with this? Um, and let's talk a little bit about some of the, weirder aspects of the near-death experience well um not that it's not all weird but you know you know no, no, you know no, what no. i mean i know i know exactly what you mean um so i think the reason that you i started off with an nde is because i mean partially it was my own learning curve right like i'm roughly i've been roughly familiar with a lot of the nde literature and and whatnot but it's never been something that i've really set out to learn names of researchers and really dig into it, um, to dig into statistics and things like that. Um, so that was partially my own learning curve that you see. And I, I do think in a lot of ways, it might be the most skippable chapter in the book. If, if you are familiar with these topics, because it's basically just setting up the concept of NDEs and why they have validity. Um, but, uh, I do think that there might be something to the fact that, well, I, I guess I would say that an argument c- can be made that 
the NDE to me is almost the purest form of the contact experience, the purest form of, you know, what the, the, the free organizers, uh, Ray Hernandez's group who did a survey of experiencers, what they call the contact modalities. Right. So, you know, these ideas were, have been bandied about for a while. Um, I'm thinking specifically of how Kenneth Ring drew similarities between NDEs and alien abductions or, you know, how Eddie Bullard drew connections between alien abductions and shamanic initiations and how Ring drew connections between NDEs and shamanism. But I, I, I don't think a lot of people have stepped back and said, well, you can also apply that to to trips to fairyland and you can also apply that to you know alter states of consciousness i mean in some way obviously because the shamanic initiation near-death experiences those are altered states of consciousness but but i don't think people really realize how when you when you boil a lot of these things down to their fundamental um to their fundamental level a lot of these things have share the same qualities as, as a near death experience, you know, including things like time dilation and an argument can be made that some of the stranger, not all, but some of the stranger cryptid encounters sort of fit into that, into that as well. Um, So yeah, that, that chapter just sort of says, you know, here are the hallmarks of near death experiences. Some of the stuff that you think might be super common aren't, you know, tunnel experiences and near and uh, life reviews are not, in every near-death experience. Um, and, you know, the fact that people meet weird things in NDEs that uh, that you don't always hear about. You know, you always hear about meeting your grandmother, or your departed father, or this or that or the other. But, you know, everything from, uh, you know, miscarried children to aliens to fairies to um, to psychopomps, which, which are this critical... Um, critical feature of the book which i believe is the second chapter um which are these figures that in various mythologies escort you from the land of the living into the land of the dead and that was probably the first thing that tipped me off to there being some meat on the bones of um of of the ufo death connection because you can find a lot of comparisons between a lot of these psychopomp figures and a lot of uh, aliens, a lot of just strange humanoids in general, but, but, you know, with aliens, you can find a lot of comparisons there as well. And, uh, I, I would argue that much in the same way that the fairy connection to the dead haunts passport to Magonia as this sort of unspoken further connection that you can draw. I think that the, uh, the psychopomp, uh, connection to aliens is something that kind of haunts George P. Hansen's work, like the tricks from the paranormal, because he talks about, you know, tricksters being liminal figures, but he doesn't really say and a lot of liminal figures are psychopops too. Um, you know, being God, being uh, caretakers of the threshold, the threshold moment. Right. So it's also sort of an outgrowth of that as well. And people still see these psychopops like Anubis and Odin and Hermes and uh, you know, folk folk, characters like the grim reaper people people meet these during ndes as well yeah i believe there's a therianthrope i believe is the uh yeah yeah is the aspect there yeah um i mean i guess uh i guess there might be a more specific term for anubis which would be cynocephalic you know dog-headed <laughs> um but yeah therianthrope being you know any sort of combination of human and animal with various parts, um, an extremely old motif. Um, some of our oldest uh, petroglyphs and whatnot that we have as, as a species depict uh, therianthrope, sometimes botanomorphic uh, 
people as well who have like mushrooms growing out of them who are, who are mushroom people. Nice. Um, one of the earliest, you know, of course the, the archeologists will say it's one of the earliest examples of abstract thought, but I think that it might be pointing to some sort of, you know, distinct, perhaps dare I say objective reality, but that's a common motif that you find not only among psychopomps, but also, um, you know, it's a pervasive shamanic motif. And then when you look at aliens, like they're almost always therianthropes, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, if they're not greys, which have plenty of comparisons that you can draw to skeletons and corpses, um, the other things are almost always combinations of human and some animal from Earth, right? It's <laughs> it's so rarely, it doesn't, doesn't never happen, right? But it's so rarely that you see an alien that actually seems alien, right? Like maybe Pascagoula is a good example, um, but uh, but you know usually it's like lizard people or bird people or you know dog people, and a lot of these a lot of these um, a lot of these therianthropic animals or these therianthropic aliens rather um, are humanoids combined with an animal that oftentimes has death symbolism attached to it. Oftentimes has a psychopomp role. I mean, birds are birds, horses, and dogs are some of the most pervasive. Um, psychopomps that you'll find and you can find plenty of connections uh, between those animals both in those theranthropic manifestations but also in terms of just how these animals are associated with the phenomena in general i mean i think maybe this might provide a I th let's just say that i think that people who really dig mike clellan's work will, will find a lot of, of value in the way that you can sort of bring birds into the discussion the same way that that humans are usually really focused on themselves and not the larger ecology, I guess that's really great symbolism too, in introducing us into an ecology of other beings that aren't necessarily uh, just humans or human souls. Yeah. And, and I, I think that I want to get this out of the way too. I think that there are plenty of criticisms that you can level in this book, you know, <laughs> number one, it's too long, right? Or essay book when I refer to the two volumes. Um, and another criticism that I think you can level at it is that there's a certain wishy-washiness that I have regarding what these things are. You know, you, you had sort of alluded to non-humans, and I, I definitely leave the door open for that. I think what I think what I was driving at, and again, I have some ambiguity about this myself, but I think what I was driving at was the fact that like it gets to a certain point on the other side of whatever this veil is that distinctions like human and non-human start to start to lose their meaning, you know? Um, and, you know, there's, there's actually a little bit of room for the extraterrestrial hypothesis in there um, regarding that. Um, but it's almost as if there's this soup from which all things are drawn and, and get connected. And these things can be not us, but also an expression of ourselves and, and all sorts of things in really confusing ways that we, that we lack the framework for discussing in this sort of Cartesian dualism that we deal with. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. And I think that, again, that, that ecological perspective, I think is a good way to, I think it might be one of the few ways that you can sort of reconcile how much variation there is in a lot of these phenomena. Yeah. I'm going to come back to the psychopomps, but before we, we do that, um, psychic after effects, of these near-death experiences well people in near-death experiences experience a drastic change in personality first of all so that's one after effect but you've also got these more kind of weird psychic after effects that happen and i wrote down here like this idea of like the drought of forgetfulness and these concepts that are entering into this near-death experience literature but also into more 
ancient and medieval literature? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting interesting thread to, to pick on too. And and again, people who are familiar with Ring and, and Bullard will will certainly see that those after effects are mentioned in that those bodies of literature as well, um, which you know looked at from a different perspective um, have the same sort of psychic awareness and opening up uh, that you would associate with people um, who are given the responsibility of communicating with the spirit world in animist societies. Um, specifically, I, I think it's really fascinating that as you alluded to the, the draft of forgetfulness, Lethe um, is something that you see in a lot of different mythologies, you know, in Chinese mythology, if you cross, if you cross over into reincarnation, you might be crossing the bridge of forgetfulness and you drink the broth of oblivion. But for the Greeks, this was, this was this brew called lethe, which was either a drink or sometimes it was just the, the plains of forgetfulness that you'd pass over. Um, and if people who were being reincarnated refused to partake of lethe, or I guess took a different route if, if it's the plains of forgetfulness, right? But whoever didn't partake in that experience was destined to become a seer or an oracle or an oracle. And um, so, so it seems very important. Like the, the aspect that empowers them is the ability to remember. And uh, I think that might be um, one of, I, I think that's a very important detail because you have people who, you know, clinically die and come back and they don't, they don't report a near death experience and they don't have any sort of enhanced abilities um, because they don't remember, right? It's almost as if they were given some sort of forgetful drink. Um, but similarly, you know, a lot of times abductees don't necessarily report these changes until their experiences are remembered as well. Um, and, you know, the entire point around any shamanic initiation is to, to, to learn through that experience and to retain that information so you can apply it to the needs of, of your, of your culture. Um, so I think that's, that's vitally important to this and, and the sort of after effects that we're talking about for anybody who's unfamiliar are basically things you would probably just classify as psi phenomena. Um, psi phenomena like clairvoyance and, um, uh, the ability to see, you know, prophecy, um, uh, RSPK, you know, uh, psychokinesis, the ability to move objects sometimes, um, sometimes of, without their own volition, um, just spontaneously. Um, and uh, just enhanced intangibles like compassion and sense of duty, a greater sense of stewardship of the environment. Again, super common across a lot of these different contact modalities, even extending into some cryptid uh, encounters as well. But, you know, if you have a good trip, you might have the same experience, you know, that, that's certainly what seems to happen when people uh, partake of ayahuasca, you know, it's a similar changes, not necessarily of the, of the magical kind, but certainly those internal personality changes manifest themselves. It's the entire point of that experience. So I think that there's something to be said for that. Yeah, um, very much so. I mean, I'm glad that you started with the near-death experience material because I think that it really does help to lay the groundwork for the rest of the for the rest of it. Like you start kind of from this like basic place, and then we're going to move on to the more complicated, the more complicated stuff. Yeah, that was. I mean, and, and thank you for saying that because that was definitely the purpose was to give people sort of a crash course or or a refresher course in the NDE stuff and. Man, I tell you what, like trying to structure this book was was an absolute bear because I just wanted to write about UFOs, you know, I just wanted to write about UFOs and death. And it became pretty apparent 
as I was getting into the research and I'm like, if I do that, if I start out with, with the UFO thing, I'm going to have to go back and have so many digressions and then come back to what I was talking about. It's just like, let's just start from the, from the fundamentals, both with near death experiences, with these ancient ideas about what the soul is and about our relationship to souls, you know, psychopomps, and then bring that forward. So about that, but by, by the time you get to you to, to the UFO book, as I like to call it, which is book two, even though there's plenty of UFOs in book one, by the time you get to the to the book that focuses on UFOs, I can say things like small souls, wandering soul, out-of-body experience, um, polypsychism. And, you know, you don't have to be like, what? What was that again? <laughs> uh, so, or, or I don't know, maybe it's so long that people will go, what was that again? <laughs> but, uh, but, um, but yeah, so that was, that was part of the idea. Um, and then to sort of look at, I guess a, another theme that sort of runs through some of these chapters is that like a lot of these things only are named as such because we give them those names. In other words, they, they're really hard to distinguish. I mean, this is something that Jenny Randall's mentioned is that, you know, she would collect these experiences from people and, you know, she didn't know whether or not they were near death experiences or alien abductions because they looked so similar. And when you start looking at, you know, especially the, the NDE and OBE research, uh, you know, and, the near-death experience is sort of an out-of-body experience and it also gets more confusing when you have people who think they're going to die who still have that full-fledged near-death experience because they're put in the state of i would argue probably a dissociative state of of trauma that allows them to somehow become unmoored from this this consensus reality that we're in um so yeah i i think it's i, I have so much of a better appreciation for ndes than i once did and i think that perhaps at one point i was sort of blinded by my faith into just saying like, you know, well, of course they're NDEs because you know, you go to heaven. (laughs) Let's just write it off like that. Um, But there's, there's such a richness there and a, such a, uh, a fundamental quality to a lot of those experiences that I think informs every other contact modality in a really profound way. Before we leave this subject, I was glad that you mentioned the one where the lady saw the shoe on top of the hospital. I love that one. That's one of my favorite ones as well. And, you know, it's, it's one of the ones that lends credibility that there's more going on that you can actually substantiate that because of, of that shoe. Yeah, it was important to me. I think I have some similar examples in the, in the altered states of consciousness chapter, even though, you know, NDEs are death is death is in an altered state of consciousness by definition. Right. But like it was important to me with these two chapters, the NDE chapter and the ASC chapter to say, okay, well, you might want to just say it's all in your head or it's fanciful, but like, here are some examples where people learned things, where people came back with knowledge that they shouldn't have had. And that example that you're referring to was a cardiac arrest patient, I believe in Washington, if memory serves, um, who came back to life and said, you know, why is there a shoe that looks like this, 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 you know, describe the color, described the, how it was laced up, et cetera. Why is that on the, on the ledge outside the hospital? window and they're like what are you talking about and they they made a search of all the different hospital rooms and you know somebody had to open up the window and like look outside and then they could see the shoe so the idea right. that she you know the idea that she had some sort of knowledge of that is mm-hmm. and you know the, the 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 there's a counterpoint there that that doesn't prove life after death right it just proves that uh body that that the human mind under certain amounts of stress has psychic abilities like if you really wanted to be super super conservative about it that's that's what it suggests right sure i I mean you know i mean there's another example that i give that i really like which is um 
a young lady who also has an NDE and comes back and says that she saw her father and her father told her everything was okay. And all of her family members like thought she was crazy because her father was fine. They just talked to him earlier that day. And as it turns right. out, he had, he had died before she had gone into the emergency room. Uh, and nobody had, nobody in the family had known she hadn't known, but she came back with that experience as well. So you have these little things peppered here and there that suggest that at the very least consciousness is non-local and can do things that we just don't appreciate. Um, and once you do that, like once, once you right. allow room for that, literally every other possibility comes flooding in, you know, and some are more believable than others, but, but literally magic is real at that point to put it super, super simply. Sounds like something my, my little pony would say or something like that. Uh, speaking of which, let's talk about these psychopomps. And uh, now this, these actually come in like five categories. People see these, these entities, uh, can we talk about those categories and kind of like that importance, like the archetypal level? Well, I broke them down into five categories. I don't know if... The Kutchin five categories of psychopomps. I was super surprised to find that there isn't like a dictionary of psychopomps out there. Like you think somebody would have compiled that. Um, That's the next book. Honestly, I've thought about it um, just as just as a resource for people to have. And I think perhaps like the the, the terms and, and the parameters are so appropriately enough for liminal figures fluid. Right. That that might have something to do with it. But I broke them down into um, I broke them down into let's see if I can remember the five now. <laughs> um, obviously, you have religious figures. Um which they're in this case, we've discussed some of them, their roles may or may not exclusively be as psychopomps. So for example, Anubis exclusively a psychopomp, um, Odin, not exclusively a psychopomp, but also performs that psychopomp duty. Um, Hermes and Mercury, um, to a lesser degree, you know, Charon, the, the ferryman over the sticks, although he's not usually a collector of souls, he still transports souls. So he's considered a psychopomp as well. Um, and, you know, you can just sort of go down the, uh, the list and find some similar ones in indigenous, uh, indigenous uh, tribes as well. Um, Barnum beer is one of my favorites that gets talked about who was a Australian Aboriginal um, I can't remember the specific tribe, so forgive me, but an Australian Aboriginal psychopomp who is uh, the Morning Star, and uh, she guides people um, again with uh, o- over the waters in a canoe or a boat, which is a very important point. That that motif of the canoe and the boat shows up in in psychopomp stories and over and over again. The ferry, the boat, um, guides them to the to the land of plenty. So you've got your religious figures. You've got your folk figures, which we don't have a lot of, um, but the most famous ones would be like the Grim Reaper or um, one of my favorites, the the Anku from Brittany, um, which is depending on the description, um, either you know a, a dark figure with a large hat or a headless figure. Um, typically, I think the first or last person buried in a cemetery in the year gets that designation but always uh drives or you know rides on a death cart with a squeaky wheel um so you've got religious figures folk figures you have humans human beings um which are very popular in a lot of pop culture that we deal with um dead loved ones are often fulfill that role ancestors and a lot of animist uh, tribes might fulfill that role also in animist tribes shamans fulfill that role um, it's one of their chief duties in addition to soul retrieval and the idea of healing tribes members is to be there to help escort the person and show them the way to the other side. Um, 
then you also have natural phenomena, um, which you'll see depending on the traditions, a lot of, um, North American tribes in the Arctic circle would treat the Aurora Borealis this way. Um, you'd also find a lot of different cultures that treat the sun and or moon this way, uh, possibly tied to a lot of different things. You know, you have the moon tied to the menstrual cycle, which is itself a fertility reincarnative sort of cycle, but also you have both of them uh, traversing the sky and then disappearing only to be reborn when it's time again to, to come across um, to that end, like a lot of times the sun would like transport the dead as it went across the sky and drop them off in the underworld, which was oftentimes a stellar underworld that was full of stars. Um, is that four? No, it's three. No, it's four. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Religious folk, uh, natural phenomena, human beings. And lastly, and I think this is probably one of the more important ones um, animals. Um, as I sort of alluded to earlier, um, there are certain motifs that you find repeated across cultures. Um, a lot of different animals have been given psychopomp status. Um, some of them are extremely culture dependent. Um, Mesoamericans would talk about turtles being, uh, being uh, psychopomps probably because of a variation on slow and steady wins the race, like, right. They're hardy and they just keep going and they keep plodding along. Um, but most often you find psychopomps embody characteristics of navigation or leading or faithfulness. Um, so if an animal can see in the dark, uh, great candidate for being a psychopomp. So for example, the Moshe in Peru um, thought of bats as being psychopomps. Um, but oftentimes you have these ideas of travel navigation and those, those two are super important in leading dogs are one of the most common psychopomps. And when I talk about these three categories, that I'm going to talk about here of animal psychopomps, these are literally universal. Like, I don't think I can underscore how pervasive these animals are when, in terms of being treated as psychopomps. Um, dogs, I think it's pretty obvious why we would choose dogs. You know, man's best friend, they help pull your sled. They help guide you. They help hunt their companions. They, you see this again, dogs interred as, gra as grave goods in South America. Um, dogs leading the dead to the mountain of the dead in China. Um, just dogs everywhere. Um, but the two of the animals, uh, th two of these three animals, I can't remember which, but two of these three animals are, are animals that, uh, anthropologist and shamanism scholar, Mercia Eliad described as psychopomps par excellence, dogs, birds, and horses. Um, starting with birds, um, Again, super universal. You can see this in a lot of different traditions that associate birds with being death omens. Um, some of the earliest uh, evidence of birds as psychopomps possibly comes from Gobekli Tepe, where you have a lot of vulture effigies possibly tied, along with dogs, actually, to their status as carrion eaters, um, carrying the remains of the dead in the birds case, like in the carrion eaters, like bird, like vultures case, carrying them literally into the sky after they're, they're consumed, but also their ability to um, travel vast distances that we just can't as human beings. Um, you know, sometimes there's this idea that you find a lot of cultures, again, super universal, <laughs> it's sort of a redundancy, I guess, but super universal. Um, the idea of the bird, the soul being a bird. And that's where sometimes you see the idea of the soul being winged, right? And then horses, again, another incredible 
means of transportation. Once we harnessed horses, we were able to spread civilization and knowledge and religion and just all, all the, all those hallmarks. And we could get places that we couldn't, and we could get places that we couldn't quicker than ever. Um, so horses are another psychopomp symbol also often tied with the sun in a lot of different cultures. There's this horse sun, uh, kingly royalty, um, uh, matrix that you can sort of look at a lot of different cultures. I think the Mongolians did that as well. Also interred as grave goods. Um, and I would add to that, although not, not a psychopomp itself, because it's not an animate object. Uh, again, that idea of the boat, um, that idea of the boat and the ship that ferries you to the undiscovered country, to the land in the West, to the underworld, to the other world island it ferries you to the stars. The idea of the ship or the boat is just a pervasive motif. And I think with just a little bit of imagination, you can see how that possibly might tie into the UFO phenomena. Um, at least, you know, the way that we conceptualize it and the space that it holds in our hearts, you know, um, because once we mapped the entire world, we knew that the afterlife wasn't under our feet and we knew that it wasn't in a mountain and we knew that it wasn't on the other side of that mountain range and it wasn't over the horizon. So what do we do with that as a culture, as a global culture, we transplant it to the stars. And I would argue that the, uh, the psychopomp boat sort of becomes the flying saucer in a lot of ways. Very interesting stuff, Josh. You really have thought this out. And to add to that um, is this idea of soul traditions. And I think this is where you kind of start to really put this all together, especially talking about in the little section that you call getting small. <laughs> little Steve Martin reference. I thought that was pretty funny. You talk about how there are some traditions where the soul is small, smaller, you shrink, and you can't help but make the parallel between that concept and the concept of the little people. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's enough evidence to say that that is where the little people idea originated, but I think there is enough evidence to say that if these things have an objective reality that there might be some sort of inspiration at play there. Um, and uh, yeah, I think the, the, the primary goal of that chapter was to establish the concept of the small soul, um, the idea that like there's a small homunculus <laughs> inside you, um, which, you know, you can see even manifesting in some new age traditions, the idea that you, that you shrink um, to reenter the womb, to reenter the baby's body. Interestingly enough, um, shrinking appears in trips it appears in some alien abduction reports and it appears in some ndes as well like i feel like i shrunk to the size of an atom they'll say hmm. um but you know a lot of medieval art especially european medieval art would literally show the soul leaving the body as a small person so that was one concept that i thought was important to bring across. yeah i've seen that before yeah there are even some scenes of the of the crucifixion um as well and and you know often leaving through the mouth um which is, you know, psyche being a term not only for personality, but a term for breath as well. It's the idea that breath is part of the, the, the mouth is one of the ingress, egress points for the soul. Um, I could go off on a DMT tangent here, but I'm not going to. <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, it's just it's such, a, it's such a spider web. Um, but um, the small soul idea was important to get across. The idea of the winged soul 
was important to get across as well, which ties into the bird soul. But you also see this, you know, in the, the some of the Egyptian uh, souls that appear as tiny winged people. Um, and, you know, winged people, you know, starts to sound an awful tiny winged people starts to sound an awful lot like fairies right even though the wings were an artistic flourish and don't really have a basis in folklore it's it's really hard to ignore that i think um and then another idea that was important to get across um was the idea of the higher self which is in some form or fashion tied into this idea which I don't think we are in touch with enough as a modern culture, which is the idea of polypsychism. Um, the idea that within you, you know, we tend to think about like, you know, mind and soul, maybe your mind and spirit, or maybe you've got a spirit and a soul who knows, but, but the idea that there are multiple parts of you um, that might have some degree of independent functioning, um, multiple independent metaphysical parts of you. This is something that the, the Egyptians understood. Well, I think they, I think they, suggested like nine souls or something to that extent if memory serves um and uh you know you find this also in uh scandinavian countries you find this amongst a lot of different new world tribes that talk about i believe an earth soul and a sky soul um so the idea that like we're just <laughs> we're either flesh and blood or we're spirit um isn't really doesn't really bear itself out in a lot of older uh, pre-Abrahamic cosmologies. And honestly, um, there are vestiges of polypsychism all over uh, early Judaism as well. Um, so, you know, predictably enough, the, the Christian church was one of the ones that said, nope, we're not going to do that. Um, but I think it's, I think it's so useful because we still, we still feel this way, even though we don't like, we don't conceptualize it this way. You know, we talk about, you know, the head and the heart, you know, those yes. being two different things, you know, I mean, I know, I mean, you guys saw me in February of 2018, you know, there are things that I do sometimes that I regret the next day. Right. <laughs> um, you know, um, but, 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 but to be, to be honest, like, I think, I think that if we were more in touch with that idea, we would be able to sit with some of these impulses that we have and we could actually put like, an identification on where that impulse is coming from and, you know, why we feel two different ways about something or, you know, I, I, I love this person, but I can't stay with them. But, you know, I, I think if we were more in touch with that, that uh, multi-partite side of ourselves um, that uh, we would actually, we might actually be a little bit health, more healthy mentally. Um, Understand those contradictions better. Yeah, uh, I mean, or at least acknowledge them in a way. You know, I have to have my mind made up one way, and it has to somehow, it has to be in alignment with my heart, or it's one of these is invalid. It's like, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's a reason that it's not that way. Um, but what that also sort of allows for a discussion of is the idea of the wandering soul, which you know we would recognize today as out of body experiences or astral travel or something like that. But there is this idea that. The soul um, can leave the body and go about at will, um, you know, perhaps uh, on command as by someone who is, uh, you know, meditating or magically operant or using certain substances or um, just because it's a truant soul and it just decides to go off and do its own thing. Um, you know, that, that's where a lot of our, our werewolf uh mythology comes from is from those concepts it's not necessarily about the physical transformation of you into this human wolf theory and throw it's more about the idea that your soul is a wolf soul or that your soul inhabits a wolf you know um 
and the idea that any wounds inflicted on the soul as it's outside the body might be reflected on the owner of the soul. This is starting to sound a lot like alien abduction stuff, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, and the idea that uh, the soul can sort of uh, go about on its own is another concept that, that opens up a lot of different avenues that provide some explanation. Um, it's, it's, it's the first time that I've ever understood doppelgangers is in this book really, because it's like, Oh, you see yourself and it means death. And like, okay, what does that really mean? What's the mechanism behind that? How do you see yourself? And what it seems to me to be describing these traditions of the doubles that you find, um, you know, in Ireland and the British Isles, they might be called a double or a fetch or a wraith. Um, but you see these, you know, there's this wonderful book by this scholar named Barbara Mann who talks about a doppelganger experience among some, I uh, can't remember the tribe, forgive me. I believe it was, might've been one of the mound building tribes. Um, but yeah, people have these experiences of seeing themselves and you say, well, what, what is this like a clone or a dimensional slip? No, it seems to me like what it is, is that you are seeing your soul and your soul is separated from you somehow, which typically has always implied that you are fragile, right? Like, so this is the idea of why you shouldn't wake someone when they're asleep or disturb someone when they're in, the tra in a trance is because their soul is out wandering. And if you disturb them, the soul might never find its way back and you might die. Um, so you can sort of start to reframe these doppelganger experiences at the opposite end of the spectrum from something like out of body experiences, right? Out of in the out of body experience, you are seeing from your soul's perspective, you're seeing your physical body. And in these doppelganger experiences, you are in your physical body seeing your soul. And there are plenty of examples of doppelgangers not leading to death. There are a lot of more famous examples where that does happen. But the, I think that really stems back to the idea that the body and soul connection has somehow been weakened and you are in a weakened state and thus more susceptible to death. Yeah. The doppelganger stuff is uh freaky. There's also the Vardagars. That's another one. That's kind of a, the Vardagar. that's kind of like a, that's kind of a doppelganger in a way. Well, I love the Vardagar stuff because I think everybody I've ever talked to has experienced it. Right. I mean, <laughs> and maybe it's your mind playing tricks on you. Like I'm, I'm willing to be open to that, but the Vardagar is a, uh, is specifically a Scandinavian variant. Um, and uh, it, it's the spirit that precedes your arrival. Um, so you don't see it and you don't experience it, but someone who is awaiting your arrival um, will hear, typically hear or see you. Um, so if you've ever been at home and you've been waiting for someone and uh, you hear the car door slam and you hear foots come up, footsteps come up the stairs and maybe you hear the keys drop on the countertop and you go to look and there's no one there. That's, that's a Vardiker. And uh, I, I certainly have had that at least with the, uh, the footsteps and the, and the, and the door. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think it's a, a lovely little tradition that they have there. And there's some, there's some uh, more dramatic um, modern examples where I think there was this guy who was checking into a hotel in Oslo and he got there and the, uh, the clerk at the front desk was like, Oh yes, Mr. So-and-so good to see you again. And he's like, I've never been to Oslo. I had no plans to check into this hotel. How did you know I was here? And he's like, Oh, you were just here last week. Um, so yeah, I, I, I love those Vardiker stories. Something like that happened to kill. I think you said, but that could have been gray Barker possibly. Uh... Yeah. I mean, that's the problem with it, you know? Um, but yeah, Keel would um, check into hotels and have, according to Keel, Keel would check into hotels and there would be correspondence waiting for him. And it would be a hotel that he'd stop in just to stay at like a moment's notice. Like it's not like he planned to be there, but, a, but the correspondence would be waiting for him. So yeah, it's a, it's a similar idea. 
So you're really exploring in all these soul traditions um, the different conceptions of what we actually are, how we would fit into this ecology of souls. Yeah, I think that's a that's a fair assessment. Um, because before you can talk about again, just trying to talk about death and UFOs here, people, but. But before you can do that, you've got to say, what are we and what is the soul and what what can the soul do that we might have once known that we no longer appreciate? Because, you know, we're so conditioned to this Abrahamic you know, thought that you live, you die. And, you know, if you're lucky, some part of you goes to the good place. And if you're if you're unlucky, some part of you goes to the bad place. Right. Um, but that's so linear and so simple that that doesn't seem to be what a lot of ancient people knew. Um, and that it was a lot messier and a lot more complex than we once appreciated. And once you're, again, that's, that's why this first volume had to sort of be written is like, once you're prepared with that knowledge, then you can start to see how these things, um, might play out in a lot of other, other scenarios with some of the quote unquote, more fun things like cryptids and, and aliens and such. But yeah, I mean, I think that, 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 that hits the nail on the head. Like you have for us to understand how these things might be tied to death, we first have to define what the heck we are. And I don't think we have a really good sense for that. This Greek daemon concept as well. I mean, you talk about that in the chapter two, how that fits in here. Yeah. um, So uh, it's in some ways related to the sort of bipartite idea of polypsychism. But, uh, it's this idea that there is some detached part of you that is guiding your actions and you might have, you know, your lower self would be ego and impulse and your higher self might be some sort of guiding spirit. The problem with the higher self concept is that it sort of got adopted by theosophy and, you know, I think that I think the history of the 20th and 21st centuries has been trying to like scrub the fingerprints of theosophy off of all the supernatural, like, you know, Good luck. fairies and yeah, I know. Right. Fairies and seances. And, you know, it's, it's it, their, their, their fingers are in every paranormal pie. Um, but uh, the idea of the daemon was, was a neoplatonic intermediary force that, um, that, you know, would guide people. And I think the, the simplest way to, to sort of, uh, the best shorthand um, would be that it's the, uh, it's the shoulder angel, right? <laughs> In the cartoon, it's the shoulder angel. Um, and uh, this idea was taken a little bit further. Of course, demon uh, diamond or daemon is sort of got corrupted by the, the church into demons. Um, but people like uh, Anthony peak uh, have taken this concept and uh taken it a little bit further and said that there's almost sort of like a, a player avatar relationship going on between us and the higher self. Um, so the idea that um, the higher self is the video game player and we're the little animated characters on screen. And uh, you know, I don't know where free will fits into this, but the idea that, you know, if, if your video game player dies, well, the higher self, you know, starts up a new game and, and plays it again. Um it's an oversimplification, but that there's an idea with that. And and you can see sort of as an outgrowth with that, how that concept gets combined with um, ideas like guardian angels, which are, you know, oftentimes in pop culture, very personalized. And, you know, you have your own guardian angel who looks just after, after just you. Um, it's a similar idea. And the idea that this higher self, you know, 
perceives or per persists rather across multiple lives and can nudge us in certain directions. Um, I think it's appealing. I don't know if there's any real way to test it, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, you know, not true outright. And I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, this is something that the, uh, the, simulation theory nerds are trying to get at they just don't realize that it's been talked about before um but uh yeah so, so once you start looking at that um you have to juxtapose that with a lot of the things that you see in you know ufo lore uh where they say you know they talk about oneness and they talk about source and they talk about you know um i always find it interesting because they say you know we need you to do this to help us. Well, we think of us, the aliens are referring to themselves, but maybe they're referring to us as like you and me, like we need, we, you and me are one and we need this to help us. Yeah. Um, Never thought about it that way. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and, and what I find really interesting that sort of, again, further just blew this thing up for me was that um, spirit familiars are not, um, our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply your higher self, but they might be an aspect of the self. Um, Cause you often have spirits that might emerge from people's mouths, you know, witches have these little small animals or sometimes fairies um, that sort of are actually supposedly demons in disguise that are doing their bidding. But oftentimes there's such a personal relationship there uh, to the extent that there was one French occult scholar who actually described familiars as being an aspect of the self. Um, and you have like, you know, I think there was even a, a witch who, again, if memory serves, this book is so long. I've got so many things floating around in my head, but um, uh, uh, a witch who uh, had a fairy familiar come out of her mouth to do her bidding. So you have a small person coming out of your mouth. That sounds just like a soul to me. It sounds like an aspect of the soul. Um, and sometimes you find this, you know, if you want to draw parallels between spirit familiars and some of these shaman helpers that help these helping spirits that help these shamans, um, a lot of times the well-being of the spirit helper and the well-being of the shaman are tied directly in this one-to-one -one relationship. So it does seem like some of these, again, it just calls into question how many of these things are external to us and how many of these things might be a projection of us somehow. 
Yeah. Right. I find, I find with, that fascinating. With these ideas of polypsychism come the idea that if there are these different aspects of our souls, then uh, they have to be integrated or, or harmonized um, in order to achieve some kind of next step. You know, in order for us to move on, we have to integrate these these things that, that maybe are separate to begin with. Yeah, paging Dr. Young, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's, there, there's a lot of Carl Jung throughout the book and I didn't, I didn't have the chance to go into shadow work and the shadow self as much as I could because it was just so big. But I do think that that's a significant part of this that should be looked at um, because you hear people saying things like, Oh, well, what you bring to the experience is how the entities will react and stuff like that. And like, well, yeah, of course, because it's, it could be a part of you that's being projected out, you know? And here's the thing about things like that. Like, I don't, I don't like that idea. Like as somebody who's a Fortean and who wants there to be some sort of other intelligence out there, I don't like that idea. But uh, I think if you're going to be intellectually honest, you got to throw up your hands at, at some point and say, yeah, it could be us, you know? And I'm not saying that it's, I'm not it's saying not I, I mutually don't, exclusive. I don't, yeah. It's not mutually exclusive. Yeah. No. And I don't think, I don't think it's boring. Uh, I think it's fascinating. And I think that it's fascinating to think that a part of yourself could have autonomy. Right. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, I know it's going to rub people, a lot of people the wrong way that these things are projections of us, but I'm not saying that it's all in your head. In fact, I go to great lengths in the, in the book to say that there's a distinction between imaginal and imaginary um, things from your head, but not in your head. Right. Um, but I, I find that idea to be fascinating, even though it doesn't scratch my particular 14 itch as, as hard as I'd like for it to. So let's go on to fairies and the dead and this connection. I mean, here we get to the kind of like the really, really just meat of the matter. And I want to talk about um, some of this, some of this material. I mean, this is pretty weighty stuff. So you did talk about the doubles and this idea. Changelings, you entered that into it. The fairies is the psychopomp. The idea of the fairyland is a mirror of our own or where we go when we die, where we come from when we are born. So there really is some of this that you could really say that like the connection between the afterlife and the other world is also similar to what is described in the fairy world and the fairy land and these ideas. And then you also mentioned too some stuff about you being taken by the fairies and how that's kind of more of a euphemism for a near death experience or just a death or just death, you know, and then. What really intrigued me, I did not get to read this chapter, was that you, this awesome summary that you, that you put out of this thing, uh, which is six pages long in and of itself, extinct race hypothesis of the fairies, which you and I, we, you know, you've been on this show many times. We've mentioned this quite a few times and kind of how this is a reflection of some different concepts. All right. Well, I guess you're just going to set me up and I'm just going to go because that's, that's a little I'm, bit to talk about in there. I bombarded you, but that's that's how it goes sometimes. Okay. So, so let's start off with the preface. The preface is that it would be very easy to say that we ascribe the same suite of abilities to all supernatural beings, full stop, right? So that, that might be why fairies look like ghosts in a lot of respects. But at the same time, you have all these stories where people are very clear about saying fairies seen with the dead. Dead person becomes a fairy, you know? Um fairies seen when someone is sick fairies seen when someone dies that's that seems to clear up that distinction a bit but at the same time it gets very much muddied and you know where do i even begin um 
fairies have a lot of the same qualities as the dead. They take food offerings much in the same way that ancestors did. We use euphemisms to talk about our dead. We use euphemisms to talk about the fairies. Um, you know, again, people who die are seen, but the number of stories that you find where somebody joins a fairy dance and they see, you know, the dead neighbor girl, or the number of times when you see somebody enter a fort and they see a dead neighbor, a dead friend or a dead relative, or the number of stories where somebody is warned away from dining with the fairies by someone they thought had died earlier. Like, you, you, I don't think you could create a comprehensive collection of those stories because there are just so many, and I've included enough in the book, but there's plenty more that you could still do. So there's a connection there and sort of keeping in touch with what we discussed about earlier um, in theosophy's fingerprints on everything. Um, primarily that's what we have to thank for this idea of fairies being nature elementals. And that's not to say that nature elementals aren't a thing um, and that there isn't a connection there, but that idea is mostly a post theosophic concept. And, uh, one of my favorite authors, Claude Lecouteau, former Sorbonne historian of medieval history, um, I guess, <laughs> historian of history. Nice, Josh. Um, I, I love his books. They're fantastic. They're my favorite UFO books, even though they're not about UFOs, right? Because you just see stuff throughout them all that just talks about the same sort of cases and whatnot. Um, he described a mechanism by which oftentimes a revered... Um, a revered leader, a chieftain, a shaman, you know, a warrior um, would be buried at a place and, you know, people would come and leave, you know, mementos behind the grave, but over the generations, their memory and who exactly specifically they were would be lost. And the, the person would sort of become the spirit of the place, the genius loci. Right. So in, in that sort of description, which you can find in a lot of other different uh, traditions that I mentioned in the, in the book, um, it's, it's almost as if the human beings transition to become that sort of elemental nature spirit uh, figure, um, which, you know, makes enough sense because, you know, you might bury an ancestor's head under the field to ensure crop fertility, like the associations between the dead and fertility kind of speak to that theosophic fairy idea. And, you know, this is, this is, this connection was so strong to the extent that, um, you know, Simon Young, who is a fairy historian who, uh, I admire greatly said that, you know, yeah, prior to theosophy, if, if cultures tended to think about fairies, they often conceptualize them as a way of, you know, dealing with the dead again, not to say that there weren't nature spirits that were stewards of growth, but the ideas are much more intertwined than we would like to believe uh, nowadays. Um, so once you're armed with that knowledge and you start to read things like, you know, the fairies would celebrate at funerals and cry at births or the idea that, you know, a birth in our, in the human world represents a death in fairyland. You start to say, okay, what are, what are we really dealing with here? You know, how, how deep does this connection go with that sort of mirror, um, the sort of mirror image idea. And then you bring in things like changelings and uh, this idea of illness being attributed to fairies. So I guess I'll tackle the changeling thing first. Um, changelings typically conceptualized as sick or elderly fairies that were swapped out for healthy human infants. Um, if you look through the literature enough, you'll see suggestions that, I mean, 
a lot of the rural Irish peasantry, if we're focusing just on Ireland, would, would talk about them as physical exchanges, right? But you will find firsthand accounts where it seems to be a spiritual exchange, um, by which I mean, you'll see a changeling in the, in the few cases when people actually saw a changeling restored to its normal self, a change would come over the child. It wouldn't necessarily be a physical swap out, you know, more often than not though, like you'd turn your back on the changeling, you'd leave it outside the door and it would, you'd, Oh, look, they brought my real child back, but you never actually saw the exchange. So it really does open up the question as to whether or not we're dealing with some sort of soul swapping. Right. And you'll find allusions to this in some instances where changelings are, are described specifically as like the spirit of an ornery old man who, who just fails to thrive. Um, there were some, I'm trying to remember if it was Lady Gregory or uh, Jane Wilde, but uh, talked about the possibility that uh, spirits sort of bound to a place, human spirits bound to a place were responsible for some changelings. So you start to see changelings as possibly, um, as possibly reincarnation gone wrong, right? Um, and you add to that the fact that the, the amount of abuse that, that these children suffered um, it starts to look starts to bring to mind the prevalence of abuse amongst indie ears and uh, alien abductees and, uh, and 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 people who just are experiencers. This has been much uh, debated over the years, um, but there's some there seems to be to me ample evidence that um, dissociation, dissociative states, a, a predilection for dissociation enhances the frequency of, of supernatural encounters not saying it's not saying it's necessarily a prerequisite but i think that that regardless of what it's brought about through it might be abuse it might be trauma it might be spontaneous it might be brought about by these other intelligences it might be brought about by outer states of consciousness whatever it is dissociation seems to play a role and child abuse is one of those things that allows someone to slip into these dissociative states um I had a little bit of a back and forth with Ray Hernandez who organized that free study. And he said that, you know, well, it's obvious that, that, uh, that uh, child abuse doesn't play a role in the contact modalities because 20% of our experiencer, no, 80% of our experiencers said they didn't have child abuse. And I'm like, so 20% did, which 20% alone is higher than the national estimate. Um, higher than some national estimates in America, I would say. Yeah. That's still pretty significant. Well, and then, and then you, then you draw into that, you know, how many people recognize their abuse as abuse, how many people are open about their abuse, how, you know, how many people remember their abuse. So, right. Uh, like you said, yeah. How many people are, are willing to admit it? Right. So again, I'm not saying this is a hard and fast thing um, that you have to be abused to be an experiencer um, or that you really have to have had anything negative like that. But I think the dissociation probably does play a role. So then I say all that to say this, how did you get rid of a changeling? You tortured it. You abused the child. And it, it, may, it leaves me playing with the idea that maybe overzealous parents actually caused the changelings in the first place. You know, the kid was sick and they said, oh, let's, you know, let's force this kid into a state of dissociation. Um, and by accident, that's what happens. But again, you, you see some of these, these children who are returned in these narratives um, exhibit some very post NDE like attributes. Same thing can be said for anyone who visits fairyland and comes back. Um, they are often uh, 
they clean up their lifestyle. Uh, there's an example of an adult changeling named Rickard the Rake, who uh, I think they say he forsook the bottle and took up the plow or something like that. Um, you know, some, sometimes they become ministers. Uh, there's a famous uh, fairy abductee named Ann Jeffries who came back and became a healer and uh, a clairvoyant as well. So again, the same motif of contact, that journey, that travel of some sort facilitating these abilities. And uh, I think that you can sort of extend that a bit to this concept of being taken, which is what you're alluding to with the illness. Um, lots of times, if someone was ill, they would say, oh, they've been taken by the fairies and a changeling has been left in their place, right? Especially amongst adults, right? So if somebody was consumptive or somebody was in a coma or something, that wasn't really them. That was a physical changeling and the actual person was somewhere off in fairyland. But these things always happen around these times when the soul is understood as being loosened, right? Uh, when the soul is being understood as wandering, comas, illness. Um, and so, you know, I, this, this, this line of thought, this literalism would extend to the fact that like when the person died and was buried, you buried the changeling and the person lived on in fairyland. I'm like, well, that's, that's the exact same concept as, as somebody you know, being, you know, their, their soul being in the afterlife or something along those lines. So I wonder if that's not something that we're seeing uh, similarly there too, because it was always confusing to me, like how, if you were ill, that meant you were with the fairies. It was like, I don't, I, I never really understood how that was, even with the physical changeling swap. And I'm not, you know, the, the folklore is very specific about this. It is not a, it is not soul theft, right? It's not the shamanic soul theft that, that people are experiencing when they're taken by the fairies. But I'll be damned if it doesn't look like it, you know. What about this uh, extinct, ra extinct race theory concept? And, and I mean, this is something that where uh, I, I guess it's this idea that, you know, fairies, gnomes, whatever, all the little people, they could, could be some other kind of race of human or some other kind of subspecies of human or or it's like a leftover from that and there's and it even gets a little more woo and that you know you could be seeing the ghosts of these people or this type of thing well no the 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 woo is what saves the idea i think um there are a couple of different topics in this book um that i wanted to rescue and what I mean by that is um, I wanted to take these ideas which have patently, obviously, undeniably racist and sort of nasty overtones and say, okay, well, if is there a way that we can still appreciate the explicative power of these things while denying that nastier side of them? A good example is in the Monuments chapter, right? You know, wow, all these civilizations built uh, these pyramids everywhere and they built these monuments and it looks so similar from continent to continent. It must mean that there was some there was some, you know, culture of white people that was on every continent that was building these things. And I'm like, OK, you, you, you were fine with that observation up to a point, even even the idea of Lemurians and stuff. Um, says, you know, it brings in this idea that, oh, the indigenous populations weren't sophisticated enough to do this. Right. And, and my argument is like, okay, well, that was a great observation up to a certain point, but then you had to bring in this weird, uh, this weird racist stuff into it. 
And the argument that I would make would be like, yes, yes, they all, they were all built by a, a, a single people, human beings. You know, <laughs> it's the idea that like just because bow and arrows showed up on multiple continents doesn't mean that there was some sort of cultural transmission. It means that this particular form works, you know, and I would argue that these monuments were constructed because they work in terms of being places to contact the spirit world, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm using that as an example to set up the fact that um, the extinct race hypothesis is really fascinating in a lot of ways. Um, You know, the idea was that household spirits like brownies were subjugated indigenous people, um, that were sort of kept on as domestic servants. Um, the oftentimes the Picts, there were a lot of different races that people would bring up, but like the Picts are one that keeps on coming up. Um, the idea that, uh, you know, the reason that fairies feared iron is because the, the, the Picts, um, feared, uh, the superior weaponry of, of, of invading forces. The idea that well, this is why they lived underground is because they were, they were hiding underground, you know, um, they were literally hiding underground and literally driven underground by invading forces. They stole women and children for, you know, to help prop up their own race. I mean, you know, sort of like these same, uh, these same tropes that you see in old cowboy and Indian movies. Right. Um, and so the list goes on and on and on. And this sort of devolved into a a race in uh, the late 19th century um, to find the pygmy fairy race. And they would like, you'd have these Englishmen who'd go to Africa and they'd say, oh, look at these monstrous little pygmies. They must be the goblins of our folklore. And it's just, it gets real cringe real fast. It gets, right? Yeah, it's bad. Right. Yeah. But again, some interesting observations up to a point. And if we're entertaining the idea of, of fairies as being as being the dead, then is there a way to rescue this idea? And I say, well, it's the extinct race hypothesis, right? So number one, Picts didn't live in the souterrains, the tunnels under fairy forts. Those were for storage and for like, you know, hiding, but they didn't like live under there. You have things like, you know, um, you have things like uh, missing time where some people have been like, oh, the Picts were dosing invaders with with psilocybin <laughs> giving them missing time and it's like nope i don't buy that um so so there are these there are these magical qualities to the fairies that 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 absolutely refute the extinct race hypothesis and prop up that racist angle and i say okay well let's take some of these ideas um and say well maybe what people are describing is yes it's 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 a memory of a race but it's like a memory of a race not as they were, but as they have become after death. And that's why you get the idea of them living underground. That's why, you know, the, the, the changeling and abduction um, trope is not, is not a, is not an idea of, uh, of indigenous people kidnapping people. You just find spirits of all sorts doing that. Like, you know, you found, you even find like dragons and lake monsters in some traditions leaving changelings. So it seems to be an expression of that other world interaction more than it is a memory of these people. But at the same time, the core idea that it is human beings that we're interacting with just in a different transitional state, I think is still really interesting. And I think that's one way to, to salvage that idea um, that has since very much fallen into disrepute, disrepute, disrepute for good reason in the fairy community. Wow. That's a <laughs> good explanation, Josh. Well, I mean, you know, we, we all have these things like, you know, the, the monuments one was, was one of those things because like, 
it feels like you're asked to buy the ancient aliens explanation or like the mundane explanation. And I'm like, I don't like either of those. Like, can't we find, like, can't we marvel at this and also bring in the human element and not be nasty about it? You know, let's talk a little bit about the whole concept of the fairy themselves as, as psychopomps and their own like role as the omens of death. So yeah, death omens. A lot of times, some people will say that the Banshee is a psychopomp. That's incorrect. The Banshee is a death omen. Psychopomps might be death omens, but not every death omen is a psychopomp, if that makes sense. You know? So you hear the banshee crying, and the banshee cries for death. Um, you know, the death of a member of your family. Um, similarly, uh, if you saw a fairy funeral, sometimes it might mean that you would die. There's a great story that I included of these two men, and I believe it's Lancashire, and they're, they hear the bell tolling, um, and they hide in the they hide in the lane and from the church they see this tiny fairy funeral and and one of the guys who's watching says do you see do you see the body in in the casket it's you and it's this little version of himself in the casket Uh and i think i think that guy reaches out to touch them and the the fairies disappear and like three days later he falls off of a roof and dies right so again this idea of death keeps rearing its head um isn't there similar material in Hawaiian folklore about that? The the processions that the their versions of for lack of a better word, the fairies do? Yeah, you have um you have so Catherine Briggs divided fairies into two categories, which were trooping fairies and uh and uh and solitary fairies, right? And the trooping fairies were the ones that would move in groups in mass. And the solitary fairies like leprechauns would just be, um, well, solitary. Right. Um, but the Hawaiian Menahune, um, seem to sort of straddle that distinction. They also have, uh, a close association with the night marchers, which are generally regarded as the, the dead, uh, spirits of revered warriors. And sometimes that gets a little bit unclear to see which is which, um, you know, I think maybe a more, uh, a, a little bit better comparison can be drawn between the uh, Almakua, uh, who are Polynesian ancestor spirits, or again, ancestors or nature spirits, depending on the way that you look at it. Um, but they, uh, they might also sort of, uh, if, if you mistreat them, you are doomed to wander in death as a ghost until, you know, their, their group comes back their procession comes back and picks you up if they decide to show mercy on you. So yeah, there's some definite connections there. Um, uh, less so of being a death omen to my knowledge. Although if you didn't like prostrate yourself before the uh, night marchers, you might die at the same time, but it's more like a cause of death rather than a death omen thing. If that makes any sense. Um. <laughs> So the idea of fairies as psychopomps appears here and there. Um, oh, by the way, something I should have said earlier is that the fairy death connection, I, I go to great lengths to show how it's not just a Western European thing. I mean, like that's where we know it mostly from, but you can find fairies in the dead amongst indigenous new world tribes and in Africa and in Asia as well. And Island Southeast Asia, like it's, it's all mixed up in there for sure. Um, uh, but uh, fairies of psychopomps, do you find some allusions to that in some uh, North American tribal lore? Um, you find just bits and pieces here and there, but to be completely honest, a strong 
textual case is a little bit difficult to mount. Um, and the reason for that primarily is in the fairy character that you see in Western Europe. They're so capricious and uh, they don't generally exercise the altruism that you need to be a psychopomp, right? Psychopomps are famously neutral. They're like, hey, I'm just here to do my job. I'm just taking you from one side to the other, I'm not casting any uh, judgment on this. Um, having said that, there are appearances. One of my favorite stories um, comes from, uh, again, Simon Young compiled this uh, fairy census. And there was a young girl who uh, was reading in her garden in, uh, I think this was in England. And she hears a commotion in the orchard and she looks up and there's a vicar who just died recently, who is being tugged backwards by these little fairies. Um, so it's the idea that they're dragging him to the afterlife. Um, and, and I would make a, I would, I would say that there are plenty of fairy characteristics that are highly suggestive of psychopomps. One of the things that I find really fascinating is this idea of uh, the psychopomps wand. And you see this time and time again, right? You know, Hermes has his uh, Kirikion, um that he carries. Uh, Jizo, a, a Japanese uh, psychopomp, has a staff. Um, Epona and uh, European equine horse goddess psychopomp carries a gigantic key. There's always this idea of wands and staves. There's a couple of reasons for that. Um, you know, the reason the, the place that the golden bow takes its name from James Fraser's golden bow is, is from the, the, the bow being used to open the other world. So it's this idea that you can knock on things and open up portals to other realms. You know, if you're knocking on the ground, you're knocking on the ceiling of the underworld. So, but, um, I find it interesting that, you know, one of the most common fairy and alien accoutrements is, is the wand, right? And even, even if you don't necessarily draw that con connection to psychopomps, you can still draw that connection to leaders and authorities in general. And you think about the way that, you know, every marching band is led by a, <laughs> a guy with a baton or conductors have a, have a baton as well. So I think that might be, it's not explicitly where that motif originates because you can find that way back in some of the Aoshi stories, but, um, but it, it does seem to me that that might be one possible interpretation of, of the prominence of the wand. But having said that we do have an example of a fairy psychopomp in the form of uh, Gwynep Nud and uh, Gwynep Nud uh, was a, uh, uh, the pagan psychopomp um, who lived uh, at Glastonbury Tor, uh, Hill in Somerset, that's very closely associated with just general high strangeness and UFO phenomena today. Um, Not Somerset, Kentucky, but Somerset, Somerset, England, we're talking. Somerset fucking England. <laughs> right. Somerset <laughs> fucking England, man. Oh, I forgot I can drop F-bombs on the show. I've been holding them back. <laughs> Dang it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, um, this isn't where to the road go. You can cuss on here. I, I know. You just leave us let go. But anyway, so so Gwyneth Nud was at one point, you know, something between Pluto and a Valkyrie, right? He would sort of take the wounded warrior dead to the underworld. Um, but you know, at some point, he sort of shifted into a this fairy king, fairy royalty character. Um, and uh, you see this a lot with a lot of different pagan deities. How they sort of get demoted from that status, especially post Christian Christianity to being, um, to being a fairy King or a fairy queen. And Gwynep Nod is a perfect example of that, who also fulfills that psychopomp role and who also uh, is one of the leaders of the wild hunt. Um, 
uh, which is the topic of chapter nine. So there are certain places here and there. I have some anecdotes of, of some people who see fairies around dead, um, around the dead. You know, a, a good example, not from England, is the Anito of the Philippines who blur the line between nature spirits and ancestors, but are also explicit psychopomps. Um, you know, something I find familiar, and this might oh, not familiar, but fascinating, and this is, a, I think, probably a great juncture to talk about it, is um, I am always struck whenever I read these stories of the Nunyanahi, the Cherokee little people, about just how closely they resemble these Western European fairies. I mean, it's, to me, it's the connect, the, the similarities are so strong that it either implies an objective reality or um, cultural contamination. And there hasn't been a lot of good evidence for cultural contamination. So it kind of, it, it's very confronting. I mean, there, there's some of the few new world fairies that are associated with mounds and burial mounds and tumuli. Um, and uh, still have all those hallmarks of missing time and stuff, but uh, there are some allusions in some early anthropological journals about, uh, about uh, ethnographers being told that, the Cherokee dead, um, not only would they appear around the time of death or the, around the time of, of illness, but um, that the Nunyanahi would actually escort them um, up the mountain and down the stream to, to the afterlife as well. So that's, that's one of the clearest and, you know, most direct um, comparisons uh, or rather connections between fairies and psychopomps. But there are a lot of other similarities. They're mostly motivic, I would say. Um, and in some anecdotal stories, um, I do find it interesting that like you have um, you have these midwife to the fairy narratives, right? Where um, a human midwife or sometimes a wet nurse, but typically a midwife is fetched to help a fairy woman, sometimes a dead woman in fairyland who's in labor, but a midwife is fetched to help the fairy person give birth. And what's so interesting about that set of motifs, and it's you see the story repeated time and time and time again, depending on locale, you just switch out the proper nouns, right? And what's so interesting about that is that the midwife serves as a psychopomp to the fairies if the fairy world is the afterlife, because everything's mirrored, right? Um and uh, it's almost as if the midwife is like, I coined the phrase, a psychogog, the opposite of pomp, gog, a psychogog, um, sort of presiding over that transition in inverse. Um, and I think that, you know, I think there are a lot of arguments that can be made where the inversion of these motifs is sort of an expression of the motifs themselves. Right. As you've discovered in Thieves of the Night, you know, you talked about that as a, you know, with the whole uh, the hybrid kids and all that that's the same these same kind of concepts yeah the, you know in those in those narratives like you know the changeling is a child that lives with you that you hate and these star children are children that live with you that are just wonderful or you know sometimes yeah sometimes the parent is considered the imposter in those star children narratives right whereas the infant was the imposter in the changeling narratives and i think i think that sometimes when it's that when when the uh when the to use the word again when the motif is that polarized and that inverted i think it speaks to the same body of folklore being reinvented as we're kind of coming to a close here josh let's talk a little bit about this uh the mountains and monuments this idea that you've elucidated in this chapter and i believe this was a basis for josh's presentation at last year's strange realities conference 
It was, and I sounded just as crazy when I talked about it then. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we did. I'm not saying we have to go back. I'm just letting people know what's in the book. Um, we did skip over altered states of consciousness and shamanism, um, but right. those are are essential. And those are the other like. Uh, I feel like th- there's the comparative uh, folkloric, religious, and conceptual things, and then there's the comparative experiential things, which NDEs, the shamanic, and the psychedelic are the experiential side. Right. And and it's really easy for you to, I would think that it would be really easy for someone to walk into an animist society and see a lot of these shamanic traditions and be like, okay, well, that's just what they believe, you know, and not have that sort of experiential quality to it. So I think that's a really good point. Similarly, you know, with the altered states of consciousness, like there are groups of people out there who think that it's um, entirely subjective. And I think there's plenty of evidence to argue to the contrary, but I guess the thrust of those chapters is to show that, um, you know, shamanism is a tradition that is oftentimes obsessed with, uh, with ancestorhood. And oftentimes these initiations are sometimes literal, if not simulated uh, near death experiences. And uh, with altered states of consciousness, I was surprised to see how many entheogens are directly connected to the dead and the world of the dead. Um, you know, for, for example, ayahuasca is often, you know, translated as the, uh, the vine of the dead. So um, a lot of things to mine in there, but the monuments chapter might well be my favorite chapter in the book. Um, because I'd always wanted to talk about monuments. I'd never really gotten a chance to. Um, and hopefully, hopefully, sir, if my, uh, my presentation makes a little bit more sense now after having read it. No, it did um, when you, when you gave it, it was, it was really fascinating. There, well, there, there's a lot of stuff. Um, there's a lot of stuff to talk about in there. And I wanted, I wanted to talk about it because, Having been to plenty of tumuli and fairy forts in Ireland, not nearly enough, my aching heart, but having been to those places and then to come with renewed interest in a lot of the mounds and the, uh, the you know, the Native American tumuli in, in the New World in, in America, um, I was just so struck by the similarities. And, uh, you know, in the presentation, I have a, two photos, one of a fairy fort in Ireland and one of the, the Etowa mound um, pre pre excavation, pre clearing. And like, you can't tell the difference. They're functionally the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I, so I, you know, if, if anybody ever uncovers this, I would, it would be, it would literally make, it would be one of the highlights of my life. If someone would uncover this, I know somewhere there has got to be a diary entry where there's this Irish farmer Oh, who yeah. is like has moved to America and sees one of these mounds and goes, Oh God, they're here too. You know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I saw, so I want to say, well, what does that, what does that mean? And to explore what that means. Um, and uh, oftentimes it's just as simple as the fact that these are places where the dead are buried. I think it's super interesting that we uh, as a culture invent fairies, wherever the dead are buried, but that's, you know, that's, that's another, um, another topic of conversation. But um, when, when you start talking about this, you also start unpacking ideas like the cosmic mountain and the holy mountain and the, you know, the axis mundi and what these concepts mean in terms of the connection and the bridging of, of heaven and earth. Um, and uh, so you end up talking about that. And you also, for me, I, I just found it interesting that again, going back to the Nanyanahi, um, the number of stories that associate them with indigenous mounds. Um, 
and that which you know again these things that look just like fairy forts in the old world are being attributed to little people in the new world by by the populations here i just find that incredibly compelling um and then sort of saying okay well why is it just you know is there something else at play here besides just um the dead so the first the first part of the chapter um discusses these relationships and how you know a lot of these uh ancient sites are considered window areas you know is that idea valid is it overblown um you know and also looking at how they're associated with fairy folklore and i try to go through as comprehensively as i could a a worldwide look at a lot of these different monuments and different uh ancient sites um but then uh, the, the second half of it says, okay, so why, why here? You know, um, because again, another uh, nasty idea that I wanted to rescue was the idea of the Indian burial ground, right? Because like, it's easy to, it's really easy to step into this minefield of uh, demonizing indigenous spiritualities and like, well, let's, okay, again, too far. Let's go back and say, there seems to be a connection between these burial sites and, and these phenomena. And it seems to me that there are enough similarities between the construction of these, um, these sort of monuments uh, across the world. And by monuments, I mean the burial mounds, the tumuli, the standing stones, the stone circles. There are enough similarities between wherever they appear in the world that it seems like to me that they were all independently arrived upon as the best means of, creating a an opportunity to contact the spirit world a focal point to contact the spirit world um and sometimes that was probably enhanced by bodies there are a lot of sites that didn't begin as burial sites that began as sacred sites to which they added uh, remains to sort of enhance that quality um but then you get into stuff like construction and the siting of these certain areas um and uh, the acoustic qualities of these. And you find them again in a lot of different places around the world. So I, I played with the idea that like the bow and arrow, um, these things look so similar because they work, damn it. You know, it just, <laughs> the people played around with it long enough and it worked. Um, well, maybe they are ultra diffusionists in that this really is just stuff that's so primal and goes back so far right. that it is really from a common yeah, that, that's another that's another way to look at it too, and I think that you know maybe if we're being super charitable, that's probably what the Lemurian and Atlantean people are getting at. Um, but 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 yeah, I mean I think that that's I mean you could make this you could make a similar case. Um, you know, I discussed in in the shamanism chapter. I discussed how there's a lot of this thinking that says, oh well, the reason that a lot of Native American medicine man traditions look like. Um, certain shamanic traditions, again, using shamanic in the proper context, not in the way that we broadly generalize it, but in that Tungusic Siberian shamanic tradition. A lot of the reason that a lot of these, uh, you know, medicine, medicine man, medicine woman traditions look so similar is because of the bearing bridge, bearing land bridge idea and that sort of diffusion. But that doesn't do a damn thing to explain uh, traditions in island Southeast Asia or, well, I mean, it could, but Australia is like, okay, well, what are we, what are we really dealing with here? Why do these things look so similar? And I think again that that argues for an objective uh, set of tools for creating the other world that people just uh, trial and error over time into figuring out. But an excellent point that it could be so 
it's it's just baked into who we are you know it's it's archetypal did i, I that was a, that was a rambly answer but that's sort of an <laughs> overview of the of the i called it mountains and monuments chapter yeah and it's it's uh how these beliefs and cosmologies informed the traditions of burial and other traditions of building roads uh alignments and you get into the old straight track and ley lines and things like that just how how these beliefs and ideas really informed monuments as liminal technology and technology of what you call a neolithic space the neolithic space program yeah yeah um the idea was that you know if 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 you got your you got your again for lack of a better term shaman there and you plied them with the right substances and the stars were aligned and you were in that spot it was just like foolproof you know foolproof way to to have that communication with the stars in an archetypal sense, not a literal ETH sense. Um, but yeah, I am. Um, I mean, and also the way that we, we constantly reinvent these things and that's no real surprise to anybody, but I didn't quite realize the deep association connotation of mountains with the dead. Um, and how, like, you know, it was just believed that the dead often lived a second life under mountains. And that probably is where a lot of the associations with hills and mountains, you know, in addition to the burial mounds, but a lot of the associations with hills and mountains uh, came up, cropped up with the, with the fairy folk. Cause it was an extension of that idea. And I'll be damned. Where are UFO bases nowadays? They're always <laughs> underneath a mountain, you know, every time. Um, and then, yeah, you can say the exact same things about uh, ley lines, which is the, topic of the next chapter chapter nine um and how these ley line ideas seem awfully seem very strongly tied to shamanic flights of passage and these ideas that spirits traveled in the straight lines which ami michelle pops out with i think in the 1960s if memory serves um to talk about orthotony and his you know the great great circles upon which the ufos travel in straight lines which you know Officially, orthotony is dead because uh, Valet proved that uh, they were not statistically significant, but the idea is still there. The idea of people talking about UFOs traveling along ley lines and stuff, which is, again, a spirit tradition. It's a soul tradition about the, the free passage of souls between sites. That's something that just boggled my mind as I got into this. Is And it, it's I, I'm afraid of it because... I don't like having my mind made up about these topics, but the more I dug into this, the more I'm like, there's a consistency and a predictability to these things, to this, to this perspective of death and souls regarding all this stuff that I, at this point, I cannot ignore that there's so much, again, internal logic and internal consistency to these things that I think is just has really changed the way that I look at these phenomena for me. And I think on that note, I think that's a good place to stop. But before we do, uh, let's talk a little bit about this presentation that you're going to give for us for our next Strange Realities online event coming up on July 22nd, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, which I believe is probably what we've we've probably have covered it. At some we point actually haven't because it's in volume not. two. <laughs> we good, actually have good. Yeah. Um, this, you know, it's, 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 it's a close tie between 
the mountains and monuments chapter and uh, this chapter that this presentation is built on for like Josh's favorite chapter. Um, this chapter is based on what I call the Jeffrey Kripal trap chapter. Um, not that it necessarily focuses on his work, but it's, it's definitely something, an idea that um, he's expressed a lot of sympathy for in some of our personal conversations. Um, and it is called, uh, the, the chapter is, or rather the presentation is called Soulcraft, Understanding the UFO as a Death Symbol. Um, so basically it's looking at some of the, hopefully I will do a good enough job of walking people through some of these concepts to where they can entertain the possibility that UFOs might be souls. <laughs> um, it's a far out idea, um, but it's actually not the strangest idea in the presentation. Um, you know, unfortunately at this point in the book, I've had all this, this uh, supporting information in the background, but hopefully I can make a case for it. Um, possibly the idea that UFOs are souls or, the idea that UFOs are soul vehicles. And I might mean that figuratively and I might mean that literally um, built by uh, the hands of the dead in the afterlife. It's, it's wild stuff, but there is a basis for it, not only in a lot of uh, ancient cosmologies, but even in some modern ufological thought, people have entertained similar ideas. You know, the, the example that I always like to use is um Whitley Strieber's new summation of his uh, implant is not that it's extraterrestrial technology, but rather that it is a method for contacting the dead that was built by electronic voice phenomena pioneer Constantine Raudave after he died. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> this, is, the, this is the ITC stuff, yeah. But, but yeah. again, consistent with the ideas of fairyland being a mere universe where life continues, consistent with the idea that uh, the Egyptian uh, Tuat, the afterlife, was a place where you still got up every day and plowed your fields and worshipped the gods and ate dinner and went to sleep. It's, it's, it's kind of like breakaway civilization taken to the nth degree. So those are the ideas that we'll be discussing. And it's, uh, yeah, look, really looking forward to it. Very nice. And, and guys, that's going to be July 22nd. Uh, you guys can check that out. It is, of course, for our Patreons, first and foremost, uh, $10 level and above. But also, you can buy a ticket from Eventbrite as well for $10. Just come see Josh. And Josh, is he is worth $10 of your money. So... Uh, Josh, Ecology of Souls, the double set with the companion. Yep, the, uh, where the, can the, people find gotta it? Gotta catch them all. Exclusively on Amazon. And I will say that the thrifty thing to do is to pick up the ebook and check out the free com uh, companion book on my website. Um, but if you're like me, who likes having things in meat space, um, both print books are available and the companion book for the completionists out there is available as well. Um, can I, can I address some upcoming uh, appearances that I have? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Um, now that appearances are a thing, um, I will not be at strange realities 2022 this year, much to my chagrin. I had a conflict pop up and I, I figured that I, I don't know. You guys could probably use a break for me. You've seen me for what, three years in a row now. Um, but yeah. Um, uh, I, I, I will be there in spirit. Um, I'll let my soul wander. We'll get a cardboard cutout of you <laughs> yeah. and Josh Cutchin. 
Um, uh, ticket sales are closing, but might still be open for an event that I'm going to be at uh, August 11th through 14th in Franklin Grove, Illinois. It's called the Worldwide Metaphysical Tribe. It's uh, it's not a retreat, but it looks a lot like a retreat. It's just a wonderful um, setting at a at a at a hotel there in in the middle of the middle of the wilderness and uh, i'm one of the speakers and we're going to do a uh, a ce5 to call down a ufo which i'm super excited about because i am paranormal kryptonite i want to see what happens um i'm a little bit out of order because the weekend before i should say this um i will be at the midwest conference on the unknown in cape Girardeau, missouri that's august 5th through 7th um Tickets are still on sale. It is a hell of a lineup. It's Micah Hanks, Ryan Sprague, Ken Gerhart, Steve Ward, Zach Bales, Courtney Block, Margie Kay, Michael Huntington, and Joel Rhodes. Um, I cannot wait for this event. It's going to be, it's going to be super huge. There's vendors. They've really gone all out for it. It's fantastic. Um, and then uh, in uh, over Labor Day weekend, um, I will be at Dragon Con here in Atlanta. Um, where I will be on the paranormal track. I think they brought me in as the aliens guy. So it's going to be really interesting when I say, I don't think it's aliens, but we'll see. Uh, it'll be fun. You know, I've been asking for a couple of years, like I'm here in town, would love to come to dragon con. And uh, this is the year they finally invited me. So I'm cool. quite, uh, quite excited. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, so yeah, ecology of souls. It's out there. Uh, pick it up. And if you pick it up and you like it, leave a review. And if you don't like it, <laughs> You can still leave a review, but be kind. <laughs> Since you've got this magnum opus, I always ask everybody, "What's next for you, Josh?" Not a damn thing for a long time. Um, okay, I, I have I have some ideas on my whiteboard, um, but I just this this took a lot out of me. Um, you know, it, it came together quickly, but it was still the longest process that I've had um, coming in. It'll be it would be it would be two years in October. Um, which, you know, again, it was wow. pretty, pretty, pretty quick, but at the same time, like, I think it's, I think I hit 4,000 in notes this time and I'm just, I'm spent. Um, so I have some ideas. Um, I think I want to do a couple more partnerships in the future. There might be some uh, Cutchin Renner joints coming up down the road, but it's going to be a while. Um, so for right now, I'm just going to sort of sit back and do some other things. Um, but uh, yeah. And, and honestly, like I kind of need to rewire my brain after this book because it's yeah. hard for me to not see things this way. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. How was it staring into the abyss like that? You know what? It's, I know we got to go, but I, I will say that like a big part of this was just me trying to figure out how to integrate these things in, into my faith. And the afterward sort of talks about that. Um, you know, it's 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 complex and and in this in some ways like that's another reason that i i kind of don't want to write anything for a while is because this was such a personal work in a lot of ways just trying to figure out what all this means to me on a, on a personal level i will say that like my understanding of death because it's, it's something my wife always asks she's like are you sure people want to read about death and i'm like well look it's i think it's an interesting connection but it's it's so much it's not just about death. It's about birth and re and, and, and the cycle of life, life and appreciating life. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, there's probably a better t subtitle for it than the one that I picked, but, um, but yeah, in a lot of ways, it has been a life affirming experience for me. And, uh, you know, a lot of these traditions um, say that, 
you have to sort of forge your afterlife vehicle. You know, you have to meditate so that you know what to do after you make the transition. And that's what that's the psychopomps the are there for. Right? Yeah. So maybe, maybe this partially did it for me since I'm crap at meditating. So <laughs> we'll see, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's been, it has changed the way that I think about everything now. I will say that. Well, excellent. Um, and guys, uh, again, July 22nd, 8 p.m., even though Josh isn't going to be at Strange Realities, he is still doing a Strange Realities online event with us, so you guys can can see him there. And uh, Strange Realities Conference, October 14th through the 16th. Come join us here in Nashville. Tickets are $70 for the in-person and $30 for, in- for online. We're hoping that you all come, and we – we pack the house over at SIR Nashville. And uh, also, our Patreon is still available. Trying to get some stuff up there, but uh, sometimes it's slow going. Things, you know, life gets in the way. But uh, Serfiel can tell you where to find that if you want to support us and what we do. Well, we really appreciate uh, all of our patrons. You guys can find that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And if you've attended one of these Strange Realities monthly presentations so far, or if you're interested in attending this one, that is an alternate way uh, to get admittance is to sign up to be a member of our Mystic Crew for $10 a month. That'll automatically get you into all these presentations. So you can check that out at patreon.com slash Absolutely, guys. All right. Join us next time on Conspiranormal. Consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.